Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we wade deep into classic film history with a true film scholar, author, preservationist, cinema host, and producer, Alan K. Rohde, whose books include a lengthy and absolutely fascinating biography of Michael Curtez, one of the most prolific film directors in history and a mainstay at Warner Brothers for decades. Alan is also a charter director of, and treasurer of the Film Noir Foundation and co-hosts the Noir City, Hollywood, and Chicago Film Festivals. Welcome, Alan. How are you, Stephen? Thanks for having me on. Uh, I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Well, you know, I was in Larry Edmonds' bookshop last month, and I saw your book, and uh, it's 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 a big book. <laughs> it is. This is not a book. Somebody, somebody once told me it was a cat squasher. <laughs> which I I, I, I I saw the humor, but I didn't necessarily appreciate that. But yeah, it is a big book, but I always like to say it reads fast. And it does. And we're going to get into that in a minute. But first, I, I, I kind of want to share some thoughts with you, because uh, in in loving classic movies and writing about classic movies and just enjoying them for, for decades, mm -hmm. I wonder, I'll ask you the question, does Hollywood make classic movies anymore? Well, um, I feel a lot of uh, like Bill Clinton, like it depends on the meaning of the word classic. <laughs> you know, I mean, as as time marches on, uh, classic is usually uh, in people's mind. It's a reference to time. And as time goes on, I mean, you look at you look at some movies that were made in the 1990s. I remember my film, my film festival uh, in Palm Springs, uh, the Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival, uh, which is celebrating its 25th year in uh, 2024, that I'm really uh, happy about. But uh, I remember one year I showed Miller's Crossing, and that was made in 1990. So how long ago was 1990? That was a long time ago. And this was like a, quote, new film. Uh, and of course, so I had John, the late John Polito there, who was a, a, just a lovely guy, a great actor in the tradition of Laurie and Green Street. And we had a ball and everyone liked the movie. But, um, you know, classic, I think, is one of those nebulous terms like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. For me, uh, you know, it depends on the curation. And, and I think that there are, quote unquote, newer movies that can be considered classic films. Uh, but I think it's it's kind of a slippery slope, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, a, a baby boomer like me that grew up watching movies and remembering when something made in 1957 would come on network television in New York. I think, oh, that's that's fairly recent. <laughs> <laughs> so it, 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 it all depends. But I think I think the word classic, if you dig down into that really means that it has redeeming characteristics and quality that have stood the test of time. And certainly a movie doesn't have to be made in the 1930s, 40s, or 50s, or even the 60s. It can be made after that to have that. I mean, 
Chinatown 1974 is certainly a classic film. There's no doubt about that. So, so I, I, I think I, I don't know if I'm dodging your question or not, not pro, uh, pro, providing a declarative answer, but I think it, it's, it, 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 I can see it from both ends of the spectrum. But when someone says classic film, to me, I think of the, the films Michael Curtiz directed, for example, and, and things like that. But I think classic has a more elasticity than that. Now, Alan, you just said Michael Curtiz. Now, yeah. in, in the first chapter of your book, don't you tell me uh, as a reader that it's actually pronounced Curtez or am I wrong? That's that's no, that's that's entirely correct. And I put that in there for Liz McGillicuddy Lucas, who is uh, uh, Curtez or Curtiz's granddaughter. And I I made a deal with her. I said, I'll put that in the book and I'll talk about that. But I am not going to go around on a campaign trying to correct a hundred years of mispronunciation. <laughs> so everyone in Hollywood, including his his best friends and his closest co-workers, called him Curtiz. So I call him Curtiz, but how he pronounced his name was Curtez. And of course, how his uh, how one of his surnames used to be spelled K-E-R-T-E-S-Z, which was Curtez. And that got changed by the brothers Warner. I don't know whether they thought there was too much of a Germanic identification when he came to Warner Brothers in Hollywood in 1926, and they changed that. But everyone from there on, except for him and probably his family, uh, pronounced his surname as Curtis. Got it. Got it. Did you grow up in a film going family? Were you movie watchers? Oh God, yes, yeah. My 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 mother was born in Hollywood 101 years ago, um, and um, her father used to uh, put on rodeos with Hoot Gibson at the old Gilmore Stadium and out in Saugus. And then uh, when my grandmother and my 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 mother's father, my grandfather, whom I never met, uh, became divorced. Uh, which was a big scandal because he was a prominent man. My mother always said, they put us in a convent with a 12-foot wall and it was, you know, below the fold on the LA Times that, you know, uh, uh, Levy Hill was getting a divorce. So it was a, a big deal. But at any rate, uh, my grandmother ended up marrying a uh, Austrian composer, bid actor named Alphonse Corelli. His real name was Alphonse Newman. And he changed his name to Corelli because that was the uh, Italian composer. He was a great admirer. And he came to this country in 1922 and bought a jalopy with a friend, drove across and went to Hollywood, drove a cab, sold bootleg hooch out of his violin case. He was a violinist. And he eventually got a job as assistant musical director at Universal to David Brookman. And he was in bit parts. Uh, he's in a Garbo movie playing the violin with her. He was in uh, The King of Kings, uh, a lot of things. And so um, at the during the war, he got his brother out from uh, um, uh, from Austria. Uh, he was he was in a line of, of uh, Jews that were going to be shot to celebrate Hitler's birthday. And uh, Uncle Richie managed to escape came to this country. So Alphonse, even though he was past the age, he enlisted 
and he and my grandmother were in the Signal Corps, and they got sent to Astoria in Queens as film editors and dubbers. So they moved there. My mother stayed here, and then she she met my father, uh, who was a friend of my uncle's at the end of World War II. They all ended up, with the exception of my my uncle and my aunt, they all ended up moving to New York uh, and New Jersey, where I made my appearance. And so. Uh, my mother's side of the family was very involved in the movie. She did extra work in our gang. Uh, their best friend uh, was a couple of their friends was an actress named Joan Barkley, who was in such epics as The Corpse Vanishes with Bella Lugosi and <laughs> The Falcon Out West with Tom Conway. And, uh, and uh, another good friend that I met when I was a boy was Mary Emery who was uh, Desi Arnaz's mother, R Ricky Ricardo's mother in the I Love Lucy show. And oh, was sure, in I remember Yeah, yeah, so she was, a good, she was a good friend. So we would grow up watching movies on network television, and anytime there was a party scene, my mother would say, look for Mary, look for Mary. <laughs> and and uh, there was another actor that uh, they were very close to named Arno Fry who was the head of the Hollywood Bohemian Club, uh, which used to be uh, right uh, near the one before they built the 101 in a building there. And this was a lot of the Germanic uh, uh, European Jews that had fled Hitler were a member of this club and they all had nicknames and it was kind of this goofy thing. But Arno was a, uh, he worked for the city of Burbank, but he also, was in a lot of movies. And during World War II, he specialized in playing Nazis oh, and really? <laughs> made a great living. He was in the movie Underground uh, that Vince Sherman directed in 41. And he took Philip Dorn to the guillotine, you know, at the end of the movie and uh, all this stuff. So uh, in fact, he was also the waiter in the movie, It's in a Lonely Place. Oh, really? uh, the restaurateur uh, in the movie, Arno was there with the menus and everything. And you could see him, even though he had like one or two lines where there'd be a long shot and he would try to stay in the frame of the shot for as long as possible. So uh, long story short, yeah, I grew up in a movie family and my grandfather would tell stories about um, uh, Carol Lombard's potty mouth on the set and Joan Crawford and Bella Lugosi. I knew when I was seven years old, I knew Bella Lugosi was a morphine addict. You know? <laughs> so, so, you know, all, all this old Hollywood showbiz gossip. So, yeah, I grew up in a movie centric family. Um, you know, I snuck downstairs at O Dark 30 to watch the late show so I could finally see On the Waterfront. And uh, uh, my brother, was uh and if i have a question about 30s movies i still call my other older brother david who has a uh, a memory like a, a tape recorder and he was writing he was writing articles for um leonard malton's first magazine film fan monthly that leonard was publishing at his home in teaneck new jersey and he was writing articles on geraldine fitzgerald so long story short yeah i grew up in a movie family so I know you're a Navy veteran. Uh, where where did you think your film scholarship career began? Oh, I think it was 25 years ago or so. I, I always I always was a, a a pretty good writer, and I gravitated toward that. But I started writing for different outlets, and I wrote for Film Monthly. 
and so on and so forth. And then uh, the writing really started where um, I was a big fan of the actor Charles McGraw. And I wanted to find out what happened to him because he, uh, he, you know, he was reportedly died in 1980 in this horrific accident by falling through a shower door and so forth. So I started doing detective work and found out that the house that he passed away in had been owned by the same person since the 50s. And then that person also, those were in the days where you could get a hold of a death certificate from LA and you didn't have to be family. So I got a hold of the death certificate and I noticed the owner of the house signed the death certificate, but his wife didn't. So uh, I checked the real estate records, everything. Long story short, I wrote a letter to a lady named Mildred Black and, and I really didn't know what I was doing. I was gathering all this information. And I just said that I really wanted to talk to her about Charles McGraw, that I understand lived at your house and you knew him and so on and so forth. And I never got an answer. So uh, when I came up to LA, I came up for a, uh, a screening, I think of the 10 Commandments or Ben-Hur. At any rate, I met Charlton Heston in the men's room of the Egyptian theater. That's another <laughs> story. That's another story. Uh, but uh, uh, at any rate, I went by this house that was in, um, I guess you call it now, it would now be Studio City, but then it was like, it was like North Hollywood. And um, I went there and drove by there, came back, and there were people working in the yard. And I said, is Miss Blackholm? And they called this nice older lady with a visor and shorts working the yard, said yes. And I said, hi, I'm Alan Rohde. And I wrote a letter and she said, you must be the one that wrote me about Charlie. I was hoping you'd show up. Come on in. Oh, very and nice. So I sat there and I learned this whole story about her relationship with Charles McGraw, how she used to work, uh, came to Hollywood in the 40s and worked at the Trocadero and all the clubs on the Sunset Strip. And then as she got older, was tending bar in Studio City when they were doing all the Western shows and so forth. And she said, I met Charlie one night, he came home with me and he never left. <laughs> and and uh, so, and I met his daughter and I met all these people and stuntmen and everything. And then I said, I really need to tell this story. And, oh, sure. and then I, did. so I ended up writing my first book. By that time I had moved up to LA, some company dangled a bunch of money in front of me and I said, I should go do this. And I wanted to be up here anyway. Uh, so uh, I did that. And then um, the first book kicked up a lot of dust and I just went on from there. For the, for the viewers who don't know the name, I, I remember Charles McGraw vividly as Marcellus, the overseer in Spartacus. Yes. Who, have, who meets a very <laughs> untimely end in that movie. But yes, yes. In I, fact, uh, Kirk Douglas, when they did that scene, was very rough with him. And when he slammed him into what looked like that chunky beef soup, right. he broke Charlie's jaw on the, on the thing. Oh, my he goodness. Also, he also scratched his eyeball when they were wow. fighting. Yeah, Kirk was... Uh, uh, I have a Kirk Douglas story, but but Kirk, uh, uh, I remember talking with Jane Greer and she said in the scene near the end of Out of the Past, Kirk has to slap her and he really slapped her. He said he left fingerprint in my face uh, and that was Kirk. Uh, wow. Know, 
Wow, that's incredible. I, I, I yeah, McGraw shows up in a lot of places. I, I think I was just watching uh, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and he's oh, yeah. in the police department. Uh, oh, he yeah. always had that wonderful, gra- uh, that, that, that gravel, voice. gravelly voice, you know, like, oh, it was, yeah, oh, yeah, like, uh, he was uh, chewing rocks while he was talking, yeah. um, struggling so- with rock salt. His daughter told me that uh, uh, she was going to bring friends home, but his, her, his, his demeanor and his voice scared her friends. And he said, let me tell you something. And they had a nice house on Recluse Street with a huge pool in Studio City. And he said, if it wasn't for the voice, you would not be living in this house with a swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you, you, let's talk a little bit about Michael Curtiz. Um, sure. Uh, this this was a huge project for you. Now I, I've done forensic film writing for years, and I know when somebody pours their life into a book. And uh, I I for the for people watching this book, it's called uh, Michael Curtiz: A Life in Film. It it's it almost plays kind of like a history of Warner Brothers because obviously the the Michael is so associated with the brothers uh, Warner. And uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, the process of compiling this book. Obviously, Michael was long dead by the time you started it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounded like from what the depth of research was that you had access to some official studio files. Oh, yeah. Well, the the uh, the the access you referred to is the Warner Brothers archive at the USC uh, Cinema Arts Library. And um, that has since everything has changed. And in fact, if I was going to write this book nowadays, I couldn't do it just based on how difficult it is now to get hold of stuff. But back when I started this book, um, they the um, USC had a building on the other side of the 210 away from the campus and the library. And you would go there. And they had all the Warner Brothers archives organized in boxes by movie. Uh, And they basically had all the movies starting from the late 20s into the 50s. And um, I did have some researchers that worked for me that were uh, uh, film grad students. But I found out I would have to go back and do stuff because, you know, it's... uh, I'm a completist, and uh, there's always there's always more. I think ro- the great Robert Caro on his lifetime biography Odyssey on Lyndon Johnson, uh, his, his motto was "Turn every page, turn every page." Sure. And sure. So uh, literally, I tried to turn every page. The book took me six years. I went to Hungary and Budapest, and I was very fortunate to meet a um, Hungarian film historian with connections there. And he was able to access 100-year-old movie magazines that Curtiz wrote about uh, how to direct movies back in the, like, 1915, 1916. He directed his first movie in 1912 when the director got sick. Uh, and he had been a stage actor and so forth. So uh, I did have access to a lot of archival material I, I also um, interviewed just about everybody who was still alive who worked with him. And there were quite a few people at that point. Sadly, many of them now are, are deceased. 
but uh, there were a lot of people, particularly as he, his career wound down in the 1950s. And, uh, and I was also able, um, his uh, grandson, Michael Lewis, who is the son of the late uh, John Meredith Lucas, the director and uh, producer who did many of the original Star Trek episodes and movies and everything. Well, John Lucas was Curtiz's stepson. And uh, he wrote a book about his life growing up with Curtiz. It was very valuable. But I was able to connect with the Lucas family. And Michael had a lot of his grandfather's euphemera and stuff. You know, I walked into his house and there's this giant key with the Warner Brothers logo in the base of the key. That's the first thing you see there. And so uh, Michael gave me access to a lot of early photographs that were taken, you know, before the 1920s when Curtiz was essentially running his own movie studio akin to a Hungarian David Selznick in, sure. in Hungary. Uh, so I had access to that and I went back there and so forth. So. I, I did a lot of research on this, and also I tried as best I could to document everything, and I don't think that there is a unattributed quote in the entire book uh, of where I got it from. And, and what I found out is so much of what had been written about Curtiz was essentially publicity material, stuff that was made up and repeated so many times that it became, I think even Curtiz started believing some of this stuff. Alan, were, in determining on a subject to write, how long did it, I mean, do you do the McGraw book? Mm -hmm. Was Were you ruminating on doing a Curtiz book? What led you to Curtiz in the first place? Uh, actually, I got to give credit to that to two people. One was Patrick McGilligan, the esteemed biographer and a good friend and a mentor to me back in those days. And Patrick called me up and he said, hey, what are you what are you working on? <laughs> and I said, nothing, you know, and he said, you need to write another book. And what do you think? And I said, well, I'd like to write a book about a director. And I thought for a while about Jules Dassin, but I realized that there were a couple people that knew him better than I did. I exchanged some letters with Dassin. Uh, asking him some questions about Charles McGraw and brute force and some other stuff. And he actually hand wrote these beautiful answers in his nineties and, and was very funny too. His answers were funny, but uh, any event. And then I realized I would have to go spend a lot of time in France and a lot of time in Greece, which is uh, a big, big financial commitment that I was not really prepared to make at that point in my, my life. So then, um, I had a very close friend of mine, uh, the late actor, Richard Erdman, Dick Erdman. Oh, and, I, I know. Uh, Rich, uh, I actually hired him to narrate a pod series for a while called World War II Daily, where we were broadcasting news in real time as if it really was World War II. And he, yeah. he, he was my uh, he did the voice like uh, the March of Time type voice. And yeah. Of course, I always remember him from Stalag 17, which is oh, one Stalag of Stalag 17 and Twilight Zone. His best, his favorite role, and I think his best role is in Cry Danger. Oh, and very good. His friend very Bill good. Bowers wrote some great dialogue for him. But at any rate, Dick and I became very, very close friends, and his wife Sharon and my wife Gemma, and we did stuff together. And I was talking about another book, and he said, you need to write about Curtiz. 
He said he was my champion. He and he told me this story, which is in the book of being coming out of high school, Hollywood High School, doing drama stuff there with, of all people, Gloria Graham, who he said was so ugly in high school. And the the notion of Gloria Graham becoming this big sex symbol is just so weird to me because she didn't (laughs) look like that in high school. Anyway, so uh, he got a a cold audition with Curtiz when he was like 18 years old or 19 years old. And the story's in the book and he nailed it. Uh, And he was in this movie, uh, Julie, which was this very World War II small town period piece. Uh, You know, he was the guy next door that didn't get the girl. And his name was Scooper. And, you know, and he did, you know, Curtiz says, doing the scene with the Scooper at the beach, you know, and he did it. And he's trading words with with, uh, Curtiz's secretary, with this woman. She's reading it. And he says, Curtis says, good, good, do it, do it again, only better. So he did it again, <laughs> and he said it was better. And he goes, told me, Curtis says, you are Scooper Nolan, grabs the phone, making contract, producer bum, call Gottlieb. You know, oh, and he so said, you, from you there, just... I had a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers. I mean, this was somebody who had like four paper routes, and his mother was a waitress at the... Uh, at an Ivar Street restaurant. And all of a sudden he's got this contract with Warner Brothers paying him 250 a week. And he said, he said, um, you know, Michael Curtiz was my God at that point. <laughs> you know, he was- So in, we, 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 we certainly associate Michael with Errol Flynn. And of course mm-hmm. I put up a, a poster from Captain Blood, which mm-hmm. certainly brings Oh, yes. Talk a little bit about how how Michael found Errol Flynn. Well, I I think, you know, finding, uh, you know, when when some when somebody like this becomes an immediate star, the the cue forms to take credit for it. Okay, and really, uh, my research indicated the person that needs to get credit for Errol Flynn becoming a star is Jack Warner, because uh, they the. there was a fellow named Irving Asher that ran the Warner Brothers arm in England. And um, uh, uh, Flynn had done some acting in Australia. He had sailed around, been to New Guinea, all this other stuff. And Flynn really wanted to be a writer, and he did write some books. I have a copy of his novel, Beam Ends, and it's it's pretty good. But uh, he was in England. He got signed by Irving Asher. And in those days, they had these movies they would make called quota quickies, which would keep the British happy because Warner Brothers was spending money, very little, but spending money making movies and hiring British crews and so on and so forth. So he was in a couple quota uh, quickies. And in the meantime, they're trying to cast Captain Blood. Zanuck has left as head of production of Warner Brothers. Hal Wallace has taken over. And he started moving away from the 30s Zanuck rip from the headlines, uh, dancing, you know, the Busby Berkeley musicals and all of that. And and Wallace was much more of a kind of Anglophile, literal, making these biographical films and so forth. And uh, the the Captain Blood script had nothing to do with the Raphael de Sabatini uh, 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 writing about it had absolutely other than the title. And so 
they were trying to get people to play Captain Blood and they couldn't find anybody. They found, um, oh gosh, what's his name who was in uh, the, the uh, 39 Steps? Um, oh God, um, having a senior moment here. Um, we'll pull it up while you're, while you're thinking, but keep going. Yeah, at any rate, um, uh, the one that played the Scarlet Pimpernel and uh, British actor, and so they signed him to to play the lead in Captain Blood, and he got ill. He had, um, I think he had asthma, uh, got very, very sick. And of course, you know, Jack Warner felt that he was being betrayed. And, you know, Jack Warner, a contract is a contract, even if they needed to wheel him in on a gurney. <laughs> Alan, are you talking about Robert Donat? Robert Donat, exactly. So. They signed Robert Donat to play Captain Blood. I assume you'll edit this. And um, uh, he begged out because he was ill. And of course, Jack Warner smelled a double cross. And of course, he stayed in England and made the 39 steps for Alexander Corda. So maybe Jack Warner wasn't wrong. So at any rate, then they tried Ian Hunter. That didn't work. They tried uh, George Brent, which was a disaster. And they brought Flynn over. They had brought Flynn over. And he really didn't have much to do. He was in the case of the curious bride playing the murder victim where he's shown impaling himself on a shard of glass in his back backwards in a flashback near the end of the movie. And then he was in another B movie for a little part. And uh, Wallace and Curtiz didn't really want to use him. And Jack Warner, I mean, I have a memo saying I want him in the case of the Curious Bride. He said, I want him in the picture. I want to use this guy. We've brought him over here. It seems only fair that we can give him a chance. So when they went through the Donnet thing and they went through all these actors, they tested Flynn. And even though he was very a lot of stage fright, apprehension, uh, amateurish as an actor, he had that immediate presence that everyone sensed. And, uh, you know, this was going to be a big movie, uh, Jack. They spent almost a million dollars in, you know, at the height of the Great Depression on Captain Blood. But Jack Warner, um, for all of his, uh, uh, the all the legitimate criticisms you could aim at Jack Warner, he was a gambler. And he, he wrote a letter and he said, we think Captain Blood's going to be a good movie. We think that Errol Flynn, it may make him a star. And you know what? If it doesn't, it's going to be one of those things and we'll figure out something else, you know, because they were making so many movies. There was always something next. They were making movies every week. Now, and so Curtis uh, and Flynn did not get along. What, well, uh, what I was going to say was, I, I, I think for the viewers, Curtis is, is making his first pictures at Warner's. But this is a guy who goes back 20 years, like you said, to 1912. Yeah. So he right. comes, he may not speak very well, but he comes over to the States with a lot of film savvy. Oh yeah, he, he, got, he got hired based on his status for making these spectacles like the Moon of Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah, which employed, you know, a third of the population of Vienna for like <laughs> months. Like, I mean, the, the account the, that I write about of the making of some of these pictures in Europe was just incredible, some of these spectacles. So he had this tremendous reputation and that bumped into the whole studio system where he had pretty much been left alone 
to make these movies and do whatever he wanted. And here he comes here and he sees very centralized control, first by Zanuck, certainly by Jack Warner, uh, and then Hal Wallace. I mean, Hal Wallace would tell him what camera angles to use. I mean, it was, it was really uh, incredible. And, and Wallace and Curtiz had uh, a lot of battles where, uh, you know, I think Wallace looked at Curtiz as this troublesome young person or troublesome relative who was so talented, but he couldn't control him because Curtiz would agree to do whatever Wallace wanted. And then he would go down to the set and do whatever he wanted. He'd change <laughs> wardrobe, he'd drop dialogue, he'd add scenes, he'd do all this stuff. And then finally, they had their falling out uh, during the Charge of the Light Brigade, where Wallace said, if you don't start shooting like close-ups and, and showing the actors and not shooting through water wheels and doing all this, uh, what, what Wallace considered to be artsy-fartsy stuff, I'm going to let you go. And Curtiz had not gotten his citizenship at that point. So, you know, they really had him over a barrel. So he, he, had to, he had to bend his knee and compromise with Hal Wallace, but I think it made him a better director. But back to his relationship with Flynn, he was really, really tough on Flynn uh, as a young actor in Captain Blood. And Flynn knew that this was his big chance and he put everything he had into it. And I think that shows on screen. Uh, unfortunately though, uh, Curtiz could be a bully he could be abusive, uh, not to stars, but to to you know the the sound guy and yeah, you uh, talk so a lot. You so talk forth. a lot about the sound guy. I know. Right, right, right. Well, the, the, char the charge guy, the sound guy on Casablanca hated him. But uh, what happened is, is there's gradually this animus, particularly on the part of Flynn, uh, towards Curtiz uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, Flynn was um, very insecure as an actor, very insecure. Uh, when he shouldn't have been, but he was. That was part of it. The other part of it is these movies, they were putting him in, the swashbucklers, the charge of the light brigade, where he always had a sword in his hand and all of this. Uh, Flynn really didn't take this seriously. He said, they're turning me into something for kids, like a comic book character. And his angst settled on Curtiz because Curtiz was the one directing him in all these movies. And he was blunt and 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 often crude and tough. So it got to the point in, I think, 40 or 41, they were making Dive Bomber together. In fact, um, Flynn actually went to Jack Warner and got Curtiz moved off of They Died With Their Boots On. Curtiz was going to direct that. And then if you follow, I followed the memo traffic that Curtiz was doing all the pre-production shot and doing the wardrobe uh, stills and all this other stuff. And then there's a note, Errol Flynn is having a meeting with Jack Warner today, blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing you know, Raoul Walsh has been assigned to direct. <laughs> they die with their boots on. So uh, at, at Dive Bomber, they got into an argument and Flynn actually attacked Curtis and started choking him. And that was the end of that relationship. And, and Curtiz felt very humiliated. He tried to make up with Flynn and Flynn really uh, didn't want to hear it, didn't like him uh, at all. And, and, you know, as Flynn's career went on, uh, he became very undisciplined. He would, he would be late. Uh, he drank. Uh, he ended up in the late 40s starting to use drugs. 
and so forth. And uh, when they did the adventures of Don Juan, which I think was Vince Sherman in 48, uh, he was like really in bad shape and, and not doing talk well. about Talk about a, a candle burning very bright and then. Oh, yeah, bright. he was he was a Roman candle and uh, uh, but a great actor. And the, but the poignant thing about the Curtiz Flynn relationship that really puts, I think, a coda on it and puts it in the right perspective is fast forward to like 1960 or 59. And Curtiz is ill, but he's still working. And he's making The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn for Sam Goldwyn Jr., who was the producer. And they had a part in it. And Flynn came to, needed the part. He was broke. He was so ill and dissipated, he was unrecognizable. Wow. And Sammy told me, uh, I spent an afternoon with, with uh, Sam Goldwyn Jr., and he told me, he said, um, Errol uh, gestured towards Curtiz and he said, well, there's my whole career right there. He said, wow. he made my career. And he I, said, Mike handled him so gently and so beautifully. And he said, you know, I used to give Mike a ride in because they lived next door to each other. And he said, we would come in the morning and talk about what we were going to do that day. And then on the way home, we talk about what they were going to do the next day. And he said on the day after Flynn left, he said, Curtis was absolutely silent and said nothing on the way home. And he, he said he went, Mike went to get out of the car and he said, actor studio can make actor, but only God makes star. <laughs> And that was he was talking about Errol Flynn. I enjoyed your discussion about the horses in Light Brigade, because over the years, there's been much talk about yeah. the, the fact that many horses were hurt and killed by the running W. But it sounds like at the end of the day, only a few horses were destroyed after those uh, horrible crashes. Yeah, well, there I mean, you can only go by what is uh what i went by was all the legal files and all the correspondence uh because what happened was is first off when many of the action scenes were filmed they were they were filmed by a second unit director uh, up in northern california those big long shots in charge of light brigade where you see them entering the valley that was in sonora california and curtis was not even there Okay. Oh, okay. So uh, uh, this was done by a very well-known action director called Breezy Ethan, who uh, I think was described by one of his counterparts as a fast on his feet, hard drinking Irishman who always had some luck involved in stuff that he did. But he had absolutely no regard for the safety of animals or anything as long as he got the shot. And so what happened was they were doing horse falls in pits and running W's. And there were a couple horses that uh, had to be put down. And the Humane Society rep showed up from Northern California on the set and wanted to be paid off. <laughs> he said, I won't report any of this if you give me some money. And this is according to the depositions of the assistant director, Jack Sullivan and other people. And so they basically told this guy, go fly a kite. 
So he went back and it got all into the papers that Warner Brothers is killing hundreds of horses. And then it started this campaign in England to boycott the film and all this other stuff. Well, of course, Jack Warner wasn't going to take this laying down. Uh, and so um, he fought back. And the upshot of it was from then on, Warner Brothers had a Humane Society representative on the set of all their films when they had animals on it sure. at all times. Sure. And the running W was banned in 1940 uh, because there were other things. There was the, the movie Jesse James uh, that was made in 39. And if you recall it, there's this spectacular shot of, I think it's Tyrone Power going on a horse, going over a cliff into the water. And there was actually a stuntman that did that and the horse died uh, uh, because of that. So that was that was another notorious episode. But um, one source of information on a lot of this, it was very good, was the uh, memoir of Yakima Canute. And Yakima Canute, he maintained that if you use a running W properly, you will not cripple a horse. And he used it uh, a lot and he really knew what he was doing. But Breezy Eason was was careless and reckless. And there were horses that got hurt and had to be put down. But it wasn't more. I can't remember what what exactly I wrote, but it was like four or five or something like of that nature. And the thing that really elevated this into a myth was David Niven's memoir, uh, Bring on the Empty Horses, a title inspired by Michael Curtiz giving that order during the charge of the Light Brigade. Uh, and um, uh, he said that hundreds of horses were crippled and that they went down and filmed some of the scenes in Mexico because the animal safety laws there were more lax. And that's absolutely false. There was no part of Charge of the Light Brigade filmed in Mexico. I Alan, Alan, would you explain to the viewers how a running W works? A running W was a tripwire hooked to the horse's forelegs that went underneath its its chest up into the rider. And so they'd be riding the horse. And when they got to the point where there was a mark where the horse had to fall, they would pull the wire and pull the horse's foreleg out from under it. And the horse would tumble to the ground and the rider, the stunt rider would would fall off. But I mean, part of this, I think, and I I get into a little philosophy here, is the way horses were viewed in 1936 are not the way that they're viewed animals, period, in 2023. I mean, uh, the country was still a very agrarian uh, society and horses were viewed as in a utilitarian uh, perspective. I think that had uh, that had quite a bit to do with it as well. But uh, there were not hundreds of horses killed. And I still hear this story repeated again and again and again. And it's simply it's simply not true. Uh, I remember this when is similar to the Noah's Ark story. Of, of three extras drowned because Curtiz, as approved by Zanuck, dumped hundreds of thousands of gallons of water during the flooding scene of Noah's Ark in 1928, his big biblical epic that he was brought to Hollywood ostensibly to make, but that he didn't make for you know several years until they, till they got the money and the wherewithal to do it. And um, I could find absolutely no evidence that anyone drowned or died 
uh, anecdotal accounts by people like Dolores Costello and um, one of the ADs that was on the scene said that there were a lot of people that got hurt. Hal Moore, the cameraman, thought it was unsafe and he told them to shove their picture and walked off the set. So there definitely was a lot of mayhem and carelessness and criminal recklessness, but I found no evidence that anyone died. And I even went and tried to find old hospital records. I looked everywhere. Well, uh, it's a credit to Curtiz that a nervous uh, Flynn on Captain Blood the very next year in charge of the light brigade, he seems very polished. I mean, he, I mean, oh, yeah, he's he, terrific. He, learned, in that. he was a quick study. I think Flynn was a very quick study. And I think Flynn was a very underrated, Errol Flynn was a very underrated actor, very underrated actor. Certainly, there were probably some things he couldn't play. But when you think about those roles of the Seahawk, uh, the adventures of Robin Hood, I mean, who else could? get up there, swing on a vine or get in ships rigging and, and say these lines and make your and, and increase your adrenaline flow. Oh, sure. You're sitting well, watching it. Anybody else? I mean, if if forgive me, but if George Brent did that, people would just laugh. I mean, it well, would be completely well, I love, ridiculous. I love the fact that you described the fact that there was a possibility at one point that James Cagney was going to play Robin Hood. Yeah, that's and, true. <laughs> That's true. He was he was on suspension when he many of his several suspensions between uh, James Cagney and Jack Warner and Hal Wallace was trying to get him back so he could play Robin Hood. And the thought of Cagney wearing tights, the diminutive Cagney and Robin Hood, uh, it's kind of amusing. But that was the thought because Cagney was um, was really the. The, the you know he and he and Edward G Robinson were really the big male stars there and of course Edward G Robinson sure as hell couldn't play Robin Hood I mean <laughs> maybe Fry and Tuck <laughs> yeah yeah at, at one point Jack Warner wanted Paul Muni to play um, Wyatt Earp <laughs> and well, and he said he said very famously because uh, Henry Blanke told this story the producer who was there forever and he said. Yeah, Muni could play uh, Wyatt Earp. He can play anything except Beethoven, because who wants to make a movie anyway about a blind composer? <laughs> <laughs> I guess in terms of casting uh, uh, Miss Miss uh, Misses in the history of casting, I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall when mm -hmm. Dick Powell was casting The Conqueror and John Wayne's name came up for Genghis Khan. I, I just... <laughs> Yeah, that that's yeah that it's that that's crazy. an infamous. That's an infamous. Well, you know, uh, Curtis uh, obviously Robin Hood fits Errol Flynn like the proverbial glove. I mean, and he the does. color, the Technicolor, the the you know, there are flawless films. We talked about classic films earlier, but The Adventures of Robin Hood from start to finish is flawless. It, it's a perfect film, and the thing that makes it uh so good is that it doesn't date because it's based on a legend it's not historical i mean it's historical in that it's set in a olden time but beyond that it's all legend so it doesn't matter i mean when you and i are gone people will still be watching that movie and enjoying it it doesn't date it doesn't date no, i mean so true you know so and true. any movie that has eugene Pallette playing a priest 
<laughs> you know, I mean, come on. <laughs> a, a fighting priest. A fighting priest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it just, you know, but it, it is, it is, it is really one of the great films. And, and I've watched it, I don't know, dozens of times. And it's, uh, it's. We, we have a group. It's so well done. We, we have a group that sometimes looks a little too forensically. And I was told over the years that if you watch a certain scene when much the Miller's son is being carried, cared for by Will Scarlett, if you look in the deep background, you can see a truck drive by. And in I, June, haven't, I haven't noticed that. I, there I, is a scene, supposedly, I couldn't find it, where I think it's where they're going to hang uh, Errol Flynn as Robin Hood and there's all the townspeople there. And one of the townspeople's there holding an ice cream cone, eating an ice cream cone. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know whether that I don't know whether that got cut out or not. But those things. I mean, if you watch Creature of the Black Lagoon, the ship is entering the the the, the Black Lagoon, and you can see power lines for it, like <laughs> a couple of things. Well, you know, certainly of of all of Curtiz's films, and there are many classics. The one that probably stands out the most is Casablanca, uh, which even to people who don't know film at all, you say Casablanca, and it's it's an iconic movie. Um, right. How did Curtiz get along with with Humphrey Bogart? Bogart respected him, but he didn't like him. Uh, he, he thought he was. Uh, um, he didn't like the fact that he would treat the stars and everyone with, with great deference and then crap all over a bit player or the sound guy, you know, and, and Bogart, Bogart didn't like that, but he respected Curtiz. And when, when Bogart did his contract over in 46 and had this long, very, very lucrative contract with uh, Warner brothers, he was able to pick the directors and he, he picked, I, I think, six directors. He picked Houston, Delmer Daves, Howard Hawks, uh, one other person and Curtiz. So he I think he respected Curtiz, but personally, he, you know, he, he found him a, a guy that was so serious about filmmaking. I mean, Curtiz was like, why do you want to eat lunch when I'm ready to make a movie? He told Betty Davis, don't eat lunch. Just take an aspirin like me, you know, and she just <laughs> rolled her eyes and, and just walked away from him. You know, it was like uh, Peter Lorre said, Curtiz eats movies and excretes movies, uh, you know, and he was so focused and so serious about filmmaking to the exclusion of everything else that uh, he could he could be tough to get along with. On the other hand, uh, Anne Blythe adored him and she and her mother became close personal friends of Curtiz and his wife, Joan Crawford, Doris Day. Doris Day still called him Mr. Curtiz when he was she was in her 90s uh, um, and so forth. And because and he the, I think the star that he got along the best with was Ingrid Bergman. He really liked her. and. I think part of that was they were both Europeans and they both had a sensibility about that. And Bergman said, he said, Curtiz really taught me a lot about filmmaking, about Hollywood, about how to be a movie star uh, and all of this. And she got along. Uh, she, she, you know, Curtiz would uh, call everyone he liked baby. And he, he called uh, Bergman my Christmas baby, you know. <laughs> Well, and he wasn't in his younger days. He wasn't above 
uh, having affairs with his leading ladies. I mean, this was a guy I discovered that had, let's see, one, two, three, four different children out of wedlock, including uh, he has a daughter uh, who's still with us, who's younger than me. Oh, wow. <laughs> So <laughs> now one of the, one of the interesting chapters in your book has to deal with a movie I'd never heard of called Mission to Moscow. Oh, and uh, I, the, it was fascinating to learn that this movie was was kind of foisted on on uh, on Curtiz and that it was a propaganda film. Of course, they were making propaganda films throughout World War Two for recruitments for the Army, Navy, Marines, etc., but this sounded like they changed all the facts to make Russia look good. That's exactly what it was. And unfortunately, this movie and a couple other ones that were not made at Warner Brothers, but this particular movie was red meat for all of the Red Hunters and the whole McCarthy era. And this movie, this movie, if you see it today, it's a really awful piece of pro-Russian uh, propaganda. And the reason it was made was because President Roosevelt wanted it made. Right. And the ambassador, the, the ambassador to uh, Soviet Union in the 1930s was a man named Joseph Davies, who was married to the post serial heiress, and was, uh, I think, compromised in that uh, the Russian regime the Stalin regime sold him icons and chalices at all this stuff it cost. So he's kind of being bribed. And uh, all of the purges that was going on when Stalin was killing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and starving millions of people to death in the Ukraine to collectivize the agriculture. Uh, Davies never reported on any of this and talked to Stalin in glowing terms. In fact, Mission to Moscow, he writes things like Stalin was leading the Russian people down new and unfamiliar avenues of democracy. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's really unbelievable. So Roosevelt appealed to Jack and Harry, we need to help the American public get Russia on our side. So they made this movie and they had Robert Buckner, who had produced uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy, and managed a contentious relationship with George M. Cohan successfully to do this. However, Mr. Davies had other ideas. And at that time, the war was going on. So you had the uh, OW Office of War Information that was had a controlling hand in movies. I mean, if they really thought that the movie wasn't right, the government could cut off their supply of film stock. So Davies had a lot of power. And the movie basically presents Stalin as this great emancipator and that the purge trials where he, he murdered all these people uh, by accusing them of fictitious sabotage and wrecking, he presents that as being true. And Buckner went to the Warners and said, history is going to judge you and me and everyone harshly because this is a bunch of baloney. And these purge trials were, were uh, 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 a travesty and they're not true. So they went to Davies and because Davies had his wife's money, he put out a pulled out a checkbook and he said, I'll buy, the, I'll buy the negative from you then. And the Warners didn't want to call his bluff. So the film was released as is. I mean, they even have Walter Houston stars as the ambassador to Russia 
and when Russia invaded poor Finland in 1940, he said, oh, it was just a redeployment and the Finns didn't listen, so Russia had to move in to protect themselves. I mean, the, the historical pretzel bending in this thing Crazy. Is, is ridiculous. And in fact, Davies took the script and took it to the foreign minister of Russia, Litvinov, for his approval. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's really, it's, it's a very little known grotesque story and it's a very boring movie. But Curtis got all these actors like Henry Danielle to play, you know, Nazis and so forth. And he, you know, he put his he put his spirit into it. But Curtis had been exposed to communism when they had the after World War One, when Austria Hungary was broken up and they had a, a communist revolution in 1919. And he got out of there because they were taking people who were members of the establishment and you know throwing them in jail or shooting them and so he had been exposed to communism he knew about hitler and so forth and he wanted to win the war but he didn't have any illusions about stalin sure, and what stalin was like and uh harry warner told him hey you know the president wants this we got to do this we got to win the war so he he jumped in and he did what he could so speaking of bending the history um one of my favorite films of Curtis is 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 just entertaining from the first frame to the last, and that's Jim Thorpe, All American. Uh, I, I today, of course, you could not cast Burt Lancaster as Jim oh. Thorpe. You'd have to find a Native American. Right. But I thought the casting of Lancaster was just brilliant. Now, was he under contract to Paramount at that time? Was it Paramount? Lancaster had like three different offices in different studios in his own office. He he was uh, he had his own production company uh, that was named after his wife, and then he had a deal a straight deal with Warner Brothers to make he owed Warner Brothers some pictures. Oh, okay. So so I if I if memory serves, this was done under his contract where he owed Warner Brothers a picture, but it was not produced by Hecht Hill and Lancaster that that made movies like um, um, Sweet Smell of Success and Run Silent, Run Deep and Marty. so on and so forth. I mean, Hollywood changed so much so quickly by the end of, between the end of World War II and six or seven years later, you had Burt Lancaster making his own pictures, Kirk Douglas making his own pictures. Uh, you had big stars like Cary Grant having absolute say over everything. Uh, on the picture. And I remember reading a memo uh, from Zanuck in the early 50s. And this was when he was burned out and he was ready to go to Europe with his mistress and get out of Hollywood. And he said, he said, the damn actors want approval of everything. Stills, wardrobe. He says, what the hell? I'm not going to work for them. <laughs> <laughs> so he said he left Fox and he went to Europe to be an independent producer. One of the things that I treasure about uh, about Curtis is he really understood how to put film music to work. And many of his films, going back to everything that Eric Wolfgang Korngold did with Robin Hood and then Franz Waxman, um, the and, and Max Steiner, who was also a European emigre, Mm -hmm. uh, just captured American music so well. And I think, in, although it's not as respected, I think Jim Thorpe, uh, All-American, has a great Max Steiner score. 
Max Steiner was uh, my friend, my dear friend, Stephen Smith has written the biography of Max Steiner, uh, Hollywood's greatest composer. And he was, and you know, they called Curtiz the workhorse because he was working all the time and making all these pictures. I'll tell you what, there's no director that had anything on these composers like Steiner. I mean, these guys literally worked. Uh, if you read Stephen's book on how he did the score with Gone with the Wind and basically not sleeping for days, taking Benzedrine to meet the deadline. Because remember, when the score's done, when the scores are composed, the picture is shot. So they're, they're, they, they, the last big thing usually is the music score and everyone is going, hurry up. You don't, you know, we're in a hurry. Let's go finish, finish. And these composers worked on these incredible deadlines. And uh, I know Korngold's son talked about his father doing Robin Hood. He did not want to do Robin Hood. And then circumstances changed. He couldn't go back to Austria when the Anschluss, when Germany basically swallowed up Austria. And he, he committed to it. And he remembered his father anguish screams through the wall of their bedroom going, I can't do it. I can't do it. I mean, <laughs> he was suffering, but he was producing one of his finest scores. And uh, Curtiz did have a very honed sense of music and where music belonged in a film and so forth. And of course, it didn't hurt when you're working with, with people like Steiner and the composers that Warner, Warner Brothers was really the gold standard for music departments in Hollywood during the 30s and 40s with Korngold and with Steiner and with some of the other uh, Adolf Dusch, uh, Deutsch, excuse me. Uh, they, they really were the gold standards and it come a long way from Leo Forbstein basically conducting a nightclub orchestra. Uh, and they had great musicians, uh, great composers. And um, I remember Dick Erdman telling me watching Korngold conducting the score for King's Row. And it was being projected on a big screen on the soundstage and they had the orchestra there. And that, that da, 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 and doing that. And then he gave the cutoff one and he said, Korngold said to the orchestra, that one was for the fucking Gipper. <laughs> <laughs> so we're running out of time, but I want to go one more movie because it's a guilty pleasure movie that sure. I, I would love to ask you about. Because the, oh, Egyptian, yeah. the Egyptian is a movie that on, on one hand, <laughs> it's epic and spectacular. But every yeah. time I look at Bella Darby, I say to myself, how <laughs> on earth did that happen? Now, Bella Darby, was she Hungarian? She was, I think, oh, no, she um, was Czech or something. And yeah. I can't remember her real name. It's all in my book. Oh, no, I, I, I know all about this because I know that she oh, pulled she her was, name from Daryl and Virginia. She was Virginia's. in that movie because she was Xanax's mistress. She was Xanax's mistress. Her real yeah. name was and, Bella Wezier. Wezier. Yeah, Bella, Bella Wezier, yeah. And they, when Xanax and his wife were over there uh, uh, in Europe, they met her and apparently off camera, she was absolutely captivating, charming, everything. And they thought they could make her into a movie star. So they brought her back. And of course, Zanuck being Zanuck starts an affair with this woman while she's living in the house and is like a protege of his wife. 
pretty, pretty messy. And then uh, there, there's an account of this. It, it got really, really uh, screwed up. And then, of course, Curtiz's girlfriend, his mistress, played Queen Nefertiti. <laughs> so you I had mean, the Jean, Jean Tierney? No, no, no. The, the Queen Nefertiti, a small, there was a small role of Queen Nefertiti, oh, okay. not Jean Tierney. Okay. No, 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 no. She had nothing to do with <laughs> it. But Curtiz had his girlfriend, Anne Stewart was her name, and she had a different stage name, and he cast her in this small part as Queen Nefertiti, where all she had to do was wear the ornate costume and say a few lines. So he had a part for his mistress, and Zanuck's mistress, of course, was one of the stars. So... Uh, in fact, the chapter about the Egyptian, I titled it Only in Hollywood. <laughs> well, <laughs> I heard it. Happen. I heard and the Egyptian is a beautiful looking film. Zanuck spent untold amount of money. He had a foremost Egyptologist do the contract design. And of course, it's all filmed in CinemaScope. Uh, Curtiz gives it some energy. The problem was uh, Edmund Purdom. Uh, now, when you look at his performance, there's some nuance and understanding. But back then, there really wasn't anybody to root. He wasn't a guy, a hero. He wasn't a Kirk Douglas. No. He wasn't He wasn't Lancaster. There was nobody to root for uh, and so forth. Uh, Peter Ustinov, who was in it, said that it reminded him of Aida without the music. I mean, Victor, just, Victor matures in the movie and Victor, Victor mature. They borrowed, they borrowed Victor. Uh, and um, it's a, it's an interesting story, but the, the real problem with me is at watching this is you have Gene Simmons, who I think was one of the most underrated, beautiful actresses of the 1950s as a tavern wench. And this guy's lusting after Bella Darby. And it's like, what's your problem, dude? <laughs> Take Gene well, Simmons and just put the end up there. By yeah. the way, you got you to tell the viewers that the name Darby came from Daryl and Virginia Zanuck. Yeah, Darby is Daryl and Virginia Zanuck. It, it's very, uh, you know, it's amusing now. I don't think it was amusing for Zanuck's kids when they found out about this. Right. Uh, right. And it wasn't amusing, certainly, for Virginia Zanuck, who put up with a lot from her husband, no, sure, uh, sure. more than anyone should. And again, the, the music, once again, here you have two composers. You have Alfred Newman, I think, and Bernard Herrmann. Newman and Herrmann. And they had to do that because Zanuck had a deadline on this to get it out before Land of the Pharaohs. And was right, trying... Which I watched again recently, and Land of the Pharaohs is kind of almost a documentary on how to build a pyramid with a little yeah. <laughs> with a little drama on the side. Although I've always been a big Jack Hawkins. Well, Alan, you know we could talk for another hour. Yeah, let's. Uh, we can do. We can do part two if we you want. We can do to. part we two can, absolutely. Yeah. But I want to put up the cover of your book again because everybody, you've got to get Alan's book. It is. It is a wonderful book. And um, I, I really, I'm, I'm still reading it. I'm, I'm about almost uh, about 80 pages away from being finished, but I, I, I'm enjoying it immensely because it just, it does give you a whole sense of the period, and you begin to respect, even with his broken English, he was a, really a master as a director. He was, uh, he was, he was. The thing that people don't realize about Curtiz is he didn't just shoot the script. He was a very artistic, creative man. And I, I'll never forget one of the interviews I did, uh, Jimmy Lydon, 
who was in Life with Father. And Jimmy spent a lifetime, not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera, working at Warner Brothers with Bill Conrad in the 60s and being a director. And he said, he said, Mike was the most artistic director I ever worked with. And he said, and the cameraman didn't arrange the setup. Mike, Curtis arranged every setup. He said, the cameraman didn't do that. He said he worked with the cameraman, but Curtis, he said he was a very, very artistic man. He said, but he was not a clinging vine type of director. (laughs) You know, he could be, he could be very tough, but he said he was, he was really a very creative artistic man. And, and I think that one of the things I was able to bring out in the book is that fact that he was an artist. He was not just a vocational mechanic of the studio system. We've been listening to Alan K. Rohde talk about Michael Curtiz and some of his classic films. You've been listening and watching Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. If you'd like to subscribe, it's certainly free of charge on Spotify, Apple, and Amazon. We can use all the support we can get as always. And we appreciate you guys listening and watching our new video version of our podcast, which is exciting, which we'll be debuting on YouTube soon. Alan, thank you so much. Steve, thank you. It was really a pleasure. And uh, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship to crib from Casablanca. Thanks for having me. I love it. Thank you.